The reading today is from Psalm 139. For the director of music of David, a psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, They would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, Happy New Year. If I haven't said that to you personally, I'm getting it out there for lots and lots of people in one hit. I'm covered now. Uh, Claire, thank you very much for that reading. Uh, It's an incredible psalm, isn't it? A very interesting psalm, and we're going to spend some time thinking on it together. So let's pray that God would help us. 
Our loving Father, we thank you for every word that you have breathed out in the scriptures and particularly this morning for the extraordinary words of this psalm breathed out through your servant David and preserved for us. And as we turn our minds and our hearts to them, Father, we pray that you would open our minds, that we can understand them and open our hearts, that we would be shaped by them to live for you and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on New Year's Eve, the Breeze radio station here in Christchurch ran through its top 100 songs of the 80s. And so Liz and I, my wife Liz and I, uh, heard a little bit of this and we were inspired to uh, do something flowing out of that. We decided that we were going to write our top 10 songs of the 80s each and our top 10 songs of the 90s because why stop at the 80s? You've got to move into the glorious 90s. Mostly we were inspired by how terrible the Breezes list was. I don't know if anyone heard any of it. How do you have a song, the top 100 uh, songs of the 80s, how do you have a list like that and end up with one song by Michael Jackson and three songs by Mike and the Mechanics? (laughs) Go away and ponder that later and tell me if you can. But here is a song that made my uh, personal shortlist for the top 10 songs of the 80s and I think it would be on a lot of people's lists for uh, that decade. Let me just read you some of these words and I think a lot of you will recognise them quickly. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Every single day, every word you say, every game you play, every night you stay, I'll be watching you. Every step you take, every move you make, every vow you break, every smile you fake, I'll be watching you. Now, those are words written by Sting, sung by Sting and the Police in 1983. One of the best-known songs of that decade, a song that made Sting a lot of money. But he has said many times that he thinks the world has misunderstood it because people hear it and use it as a love song. He wrote it to be menacing. He wrote it to be scary. He was thinking about essentially stalking someone who you're obsessed with and invading their lives in ways that you frankly shouldn't. And it is a bit dark and menacing, isn't it? Everything you do, I'll be watching you. That's creepy. Would you like it? I mean, you might be an extrovert, you might be pretty out there, or you might be an introvert, but we all like our privacy, at some times at least, and none of us is too keen on the idea that everything that you think, everything that you say, everything that you do, somehow I'm going to know it. If you could do that with me, if you knew those things about me, I would want the ground to open up and swallow me as quickly as possible. And it would be the same the other way, wouldn't it? None of us likes to be seen in that kind of way. So what do we make of a psalm which has so much that captures our attention in a wonderful way and yet doesn't just tell us that some random stalker out there is watching us and finding out things about us that we don't want them to, but that tells us the perfect, sinless, holy God of the universe knows everything about us. Is that a good psalm? Is that a joyful psalm? I mean, I think there's enough in the psalm to suggest to us that that's why David wrote it, that he wrote it not as a lament, not as something menacing, but he wrote it as something to be celebrated, something to rejoice in. And yet if we think about it honestly and just ponder those realities, 
it could actually be a little bit terrifying. In fact, I, I want to start by acknowledging that reality because I know that that's how some of you will hear this. You'll hear those realities, and I don't think it's just particularly if you're a private person or a very out there person. I just think it might be those of you who you're aware of who you are and you listen to a psalm like this and it could make you feel awkward. It could make you feel uncomfortable. And so I want to say if that's you, if you, if you really heard that aspect of the psalm coming through or even if you just noticed it as I've talked about it here, I want you to hold those thoughts as we consider this psalm. Just, just put it over here because we will think about that. But I think there are reasons why this psalm doesn't have to fill us with dread but it can actually be a psalm of joy and of hope. So, with that in mind, let's think about it. And I want us to see three things. Three things about us that this psalm reveals. The first one is, very simple, we are known. We are known. We're known by God, specifically. Just run your eyes over some of those extraordinary words written in those first six verses there. Uh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. Uh, verse 2, you perceive my thoughts. Verse 3, you, you discern my going out and my lying down. Uh, verse 4, God knows our words before we even speak them. Verse 5, you, you hem me in. God, God shapes the very fabric of our being. Uh, there, is, there is a deep knowledge here, isn't there? One reason that God knows us this way is because he is omnipotent. As the psalm goes on, David, David says, verses 7 to 12, God is everywhere. There is literally nowhere that you can hide from God. Uh, some of us this week have been out at the Equip conference and we heard uh, talks on the book of Jonah. Jonah, I think, may be the classic person in all of Scripture who tries to run away from God. He's told to go this way and instead he goes this way because he doesn't want to do what God told him to do over there. So he thinks he can run from God. He thinks he can hide. But the story arc of the book of Jonah is Jonah discovering that's about as stupid as you can get because there is nowhere you can hide from God. You, you, you think he's over here and you go there, you get away. Nope, he's there too. You cannot get away from God by going east instead of west. You cannot get away from God by turning out the lights and hiding under the bed. You can't get away from God by playing the child's game. I, I'm not listening, not listening. That actually worked. I couldn't hear myself for a second. That was creepy. You, you, can't, you can't cover your eyes like a child does and say, I can't see you, so you can't see me. It doesn't work that way with God. He is everywhere. You can't get away from him. But the other reason he knows everything about you is he has been there, not just everywhere in a general sense, but he's been there with you since the very beginning. You weren't hidden from God when you were a single cell, when no one else knew that you existed, maybe even when no one else wanted you to exist. God knew you. And it's more than just he knows what we're going to choose. There's more to it than that. He shapes those choices. We're told he hems us in. He lays, our, he lays his hands on us. He directs and he controls the events of our lives moment by moment. Those words that you said yesterday that you have completely forgotten, God hasn't forgotten. That event that 
sometime in your past would have changed your life if it had happened to you in the way that it easily could have, but God took you away from it. You don't even know, but God does. That event next month that you think is going to happen, but isn't, and we all know that feeling from the you we've just had, God knows. God's gone before you. He knows your days that have been. He knows your days that are coming. When you go to bed and you completely black out for seven or eight hours and you have no idea what's going on around you, God knows. He's in control of it all. And there's two kinds of general ways we can respond to that idea, isn't there? You know, when we hear God hems us in, he knows the words we're going to say, he knows everything before we do it. I think we can respond in immaturity, which is things like saying, oh God, did you know I was going to do this? Did you know I was going to go, I was going to, you know, we can play those silly kind of games. Or we can respond in maturity, which is to say we can respond with wonder and awe. That's the right way to respond. With wonder and awe. This God made us and he knows us as intimately as we can be known. And he holds our lives in the palm of his hand. One of the uh, features of modern life is uh, the increase in prominence of the work of counselling. And I know that uh, many of you in this room have benefited from counselling, which is wonderful, and I know that many of you in this room know a lot more about it than I do, so I don't pretend to speak as an expert. But just, just consider this one aspect, which has been put to me a few different times in different contexts. One of the reasons why counselling has grown in prominence in our current age is that we live in such an individualistic age. We live in an age where people are relationally more disconnected, more fragmented, more likely to feel isolated and alone. And so in that context, not that it's the only reason at all, but in that context, counselling takes on an increased prominence because people long to be known. People long to be known. They long to sit with someone who will listen and be able to say at the end of it, I get it. I get you. I understand you. I, I know what you are going through. I can relate. I understand. Don't you want that? I mean, it's very close to how C.S. Lewis defined friendship. C.S. Lewis defined friendship by saying it's that moment where people are talking to each other and they suddenly have that moment of, you too. I thought I was the only one. That's where a friendship is born. We long for that connection. It's part of what we were made for. So many people feel that they lack it. This psalm tells us we do not lack it at the ultimate level because God knows you. The God who made you knows you. And I think there's so many implications of that, so many different implications to that reality. Let me just mention one here. I think it could be a fitting one for this kind of time of year. When you think about prayer... It's early in the year, people often thinking, how would I like to see my prayer life develop over the course of this year? Often when we think of prayer, we might think of techniques of different kinds, you know, whether we write in a journal or whether we use notes or morning or evening or whatever it might be. Techniques have their place and they can be helpful. But what if we started just with who God is? What if we started just by saying, this is who God is in relationship with me? And we prayed before, didn't we, the Lord's Prayer. How do we start? Our Father. It's a very relational concept. What if we tried to revitalise our prayer lives, not so much with techniques, but simply by saying, God knows me. 
He's my heavenly Father. He knows me. He understands me. Wouldn't that have the potential to open up the gates where you would want to talk to God even more, where you would want to bring things to him because you know that he gets you? God knows us. God knows you. He knows you far more than you know yourself. He knows you far better than your spouse of 50 years knows you. We're known by God. That's the first point. We're known. The second point, really just building on that, is to say we are precious. We're not just known by God, but we are precious to God. There there is a a real tenderness that comes across in this psalm, isn't there? There's an intimacy. There's a deeply personal touch where the one who knows us also clearly loves us. Uh, look there, verse 13, you, you created my inmost being, you knit me together. Isn't that beautiful language, that, that personal touch? He's right there, his hands are on you, shaping you. I praise you, verse 14, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together, there's this personal touch of care and intimacy and preciousness that just drips from this psalm. Now, please don't come up to me later and say, what does it mean to be fearfully made in some technical sense? Because I don't know. When I looked at it many, many times, I've pondered it, not just this past week, I don't know what that means. I mean, I, I think it kind of means that when we consider how God has personally knit us together, we should be filled with wonder and awe. I think that's what it's getting at. But I don't actually know. But I feel it. Do you feel it? Do you hear those words and the poetry grabs you and grabs your heart? Because that's what it's meant to do. There's elements here which kind of certainly defy anything I could say or I suspect any, any of us could say to capture what's going on here. But it's beautiful. And that's because we are precious to God. You are precious to God. doesn't matter how you arrived here. doesn't matter whether someone planned for you to be here. You're precious to God. I remember uh, some years ago now, a friend of mine back in Australia, uh, he and his wife fell pregnant. And it was uh, some years after their previous youngest child had been born. And they were getting on in years a little bit. And someone in a group of us had the audacity to ask, was this planned? And the person answered as quick as a flash, yes, but not by us. A great answer. Your life was planned, not just by your parents, if it was planned by your parents, but by the God of heaven. That's why you're here. And I don't think we can read these words today and consider these concepts without being moved to consider one of the biggest ethical issues of our time. That's the issue of abortion. Now, I I know it's a complex issue. I know it's an emotional issue. I know politics start to come into the equation when we mention this. But when we read these words and when we think about these uh, concepts and then when when we combine it with what we are learning at an increasing pace from science. I mean, the the science tells us a baby's heartbeat starts at 22 days after conception. By the end of week three, there's a spinal column and a nervous system. 
By the end of week five, there's eyes, legs and hands starting to develop. By the end of week six, there are brain, uh, week six, there are brain waves detectable. Mouth and lips are forming. Fingernails are forming. End of week seven, movement is happening. End of week eight, every organ is in place. The baby can hear things. Uh, weeks nine and ten, you've got, <clears throat> you've got teeth beginning to form. And on and on it goes with those kind of things. The science, if you're setting this up as a debate between two sides, the science only leads you in one direction. And it's not the pro-choice direction. But the Christian hears the science and they just see it as added information that Psalm 139 has already given us. Because all those wonderful things are happening and for thousands of years that's been true because God has been doing it. God has been knitting together every human life in the womb. And so I think when we consider all of those things together, surely Christians, people who understand this more than anyone else, should be at the forefront of working against the culture of abortion that is part and parcel of so many Western societies, including our own today, and we should be at the forefront of promoting a culture of life. Now that will look different for different people, different levels of activity that we may or may not take on, hopefully will shape the consideration we give to our vote and to various other things that we may be able to do. But surely the psalm pushes, it, pushes us in that direction where we have to see just how different the culture we live in is from the word of God at this point. And it's not because we want to take political sides per se, but it's because every single human life from the very beginning is precious to God. That's the key. Every human life from day one is precious to the God who formed that life. And so if, if this is true, that we are precious to God in the way that this psalm says we are, isn't it interesting to notice where David goes in verse 17? Look at verse 17. David says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. That, that flips the equation from what I've been saying. I've been saying we're precious to God. But David now says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. He's, he's turning it around. He doesn't use all these great things that he realises about himself to praise himself. He turns it around and now he's praising God. Verse 14 is even clearer, isn't it? I praise not himself. I don't praise myself because I'm precious and wonderful and fearfully made. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I wonder if you've ever heard animal lovers talk about the difference between dogs and cats in various ways. I'm now a dog owner, so I can speak with great authority on this subject. Uh, people, I don't, I don't know who made this up, but I think it's a great description. People say that a dog looks at its owner and says, <clears throat> this person feeds me and cleans up after me and meets all of my needs they must be God. And a cat looks at their owner and says, this person feeds me and cleans up after me and meets all my needs. I must be God. <laughs> it's about right in my experience. Sorry to all the cat lovers out there. When it comes to God, we should be a little less like cats and a little more like dogs. There you go. There's an application you probably weren't expecting to hear when you came to church this morning. Because ultimately, it is not about us. 
That's the danger, isn't it? We're told all these things. Oh, you're known by God and you're precious. You're so precious. And we could land on praising ourselves. That's not where David lands. Your preciousness is actually to the glory of God and to the praise of God. And there is truth in how precious we are, but if we land there, we've missed it. Any glory or worth that we have comes from the perfect holy God of the universe who gives it to us. And so we should join with David in saying, God, in this equation, you are the real precious one. You're the one that we glory in. You're the one that gets the the honour. So, we're known and we're precious. Known by God, precious to God. But as we come to the end of the psalm, I dare say that you notice this, it was read out to us before, there is a sting in the tail, isn't there? It doesn't end how you might imagine or how you might have written it. We're known, we're precious, but we're dangerous. We're dangerous. So what did you make of the last part of this psalm? So verses 19 to 22 to begin with. Did you think that David wrote the first part of this psalm and then he had some other material left over from another journaling session and he weirdly decided to stick them together? Did you think that he wrote the first part of the psalm and then he went to bed and had a rough day and it was then that he came back and wrote the rest of it and kind of went south from there? I mean, there is a crunch in gears, isn't there? when he starts talking about these negative things, we might say, at the end of the psalm. But there is a connection. The connection, I think, is David is jealous for God's glory. David is rightly jealous for God's glory. He is eager that the God who made us and the God who knows us and the God who treats us as precious, that he be treated with the glory and honour that he deserved. And he is not happy when that doesn't happen. All all these things he's just considered, the wonders of God, the extraordinary personal care, the affection that he showers upon us, but he knows that we treat God in a way that is not fitting. That's low-balling it, isn't it? I mean, we reject the very God who made us, the very God who knows us, the very God who loves us this intimately. David knows that people around him have perfected the art of rejecting God. He knows them as wicked. He knows them as bloodthirsty. He knows that they speak of God with evil intent, that they hate God, that they rebel against God. And he wants it to stop. And it's uncomfortable to hear God's king, God's Messiah, someone who can write with such poetic power, it's uncomfortable to hear him saying, that he hates people, that he abhors people. But it would not be better, would it, if he were to say, oh, well, I guess some people just aren't very religious. That's not the picture that he has painted for us. It is right for David and for any of us to be jealous for the honour and the glory of the God who makes us and forms us in this way. And... The really helpful, wonderful thing is that David doesn't just point the finger out there. He doesn't just say, those bad people, go and get them, God. He is very willing to look at himself. See how the psalm ends? Verse 23. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. 
Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, we live in a very self-centred age. We live in an age where the ethos is, whoever you decide that you are, that's okay. That, that's really what a good life is. You figure out what's going to make you happy and you do that. You do you. And we're all good at heart, aren't we? So we like to think that God would quote Billy Joel back to us, I love you just the way you are. And our world really can't process the idea that you could simultaneously be precious and dangerous. But that's what these, this psalm puts together. That's what the whole Bible puts together. Yes, we are precious, but we are dangerous. We have an incredible ability to mess things up because we take the gift of life from the God who knit us together, from the God who bestows on us such wonderful glory and honour and we throw that in his face and we throw it in one another's face. We don't treat other people as being precious. We spoil the very essence of who we are and who God made us to be and we spoil the world in the process. Which all kind of brings us back to where we started. Is this psalm good news or bad news? Every breath you take, I'll be watching you. Because you know, don't you? I know for myself and you know that there are things about you that you do not want God to know. You don't want anybody to know, let alone God. But you can't hide. So what do we make of this psalm? Friends, I, I think it is clear, and I hope as you, as you look over it, if you do that again, you'll see, I think it is clear that David wrote this psalm not as a lament, but as an expression of hope and joy. Because even 3,000 years ago, David knew God as a God of mercy. He knew God as a God of compassion. He was the king of Israel, the nation that God had made those great promises to, the nation that God had rescued, even though they didn't deserve it. God didn't shower his love on Israel because they were the best of all the nations. He showered his love on them because he is loving and compassionate. And David knew that. And David knew that God had revealed himself to Israel as a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, compassionate and forgiving. David knew that that's who God is. And so that's why he was able to write this psalm this way. And yet David only knew part of the picture. Friends, you and I know so much more than King David when he wrote these words. You and I can read this psalm and any fear that we feel, any questions that come in our minds, they can be dispelled because of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I know the one who allows us to stand before God, not fearful, not pretending that we don't sin, but confident that even when we do sin, he will accept us. Even when he knows every detail of our lives, he loves us and he accepts us. Not because he doesn't care about those things, but because Jesus has dealt with our sin. We don't have to fear because our sin's been taken away. Friends, if you're here this morning and if you haven't yet taken that step of turning to the Lord Jesus in trust, in repentance, looking to him as your saviour, I hope you feel the weight of this psalm 
in the kind of negative direction that I've been talking about. And that's kind of a difficult thing to say because it sounds like I'm being negative and wanting you to feel lousy, but I don't want you to stop there. I want you to feel the negative side of it because that, I think, is what you need to show you why you need Jesus, to show you why it is that we keep going on and on about Jesus because Christians everywhere are aware that they need him. You need him. So I hope you feel that. I hope you feel the weight of what this psalm is showing us about God, about his knowledge of us. But for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, let me finish by reading these words and then leading us in prayer. These are wonderful words from 1 John in the New Testament. John writes this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sin of the whole world. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would search us, that you would know our hearts, test us, know our anxious thoughts, See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. For we give you the greatest praise, Father, that we can pray this and we can read the words of this psalm not with fear but with joy. Father, we praise you that you know us. We praise you that we are precious to you. And we praise you that in the Lord Jesus Christ you've made it possible for us to stand before you, not fearful but confident and hopeful, and joyful of your love for us. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.